0: Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your calling. We thank You that You came for us poor, wretched sinners. Instill in our hearts the fullness of the meaning of that. And now, Your call upon our lives to show forth the mercy that we have received. Enable us, O Lord, to continually receive that mercy and then to pour that mercy forth by Your Spirit. And may Your Spirit change the hearts and lives of those who encounter Your mercy through us, that Your kingdom might grow and that Your name would be made known. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said earlier, we're now in this season after Pentecost we enter into this time of reflection on the work of Christ through the Spirit for us. We listen to God's Word and that hopefulness of His Spirit being at work because His Spirit is always at work. And in our lessons today, we have a theme running through all of them about God's mercy. About how it draws out faith that it's not about blind adherence and blind obedience to the law to making sacrifices, but it is about the heart. The heart that receives mercy, that receives God's steadfast love. And in hearing all of this, we're continually directed toward that steadfast love, that covenant faithfulness of God, to remember that He is fulfilling His promises as He said He would. And in His fulfilling of those promises, we are changed We are called into His presence. We are called to follow. And being changed, we become those very ones that God then works through in this world. But when He calls us by His covenant faithfulness, when He shows Himself as the one who is faithful to His covenant promises, we we are called to see that we aren't faithful to what He has called us to do. That's what so much of our passages are about today. The reality that God reveals Himself as faithful to His covenant, and yet, in that revelation of His faithfulness, we should respond with our admitting that we are not faithful. That we are not ones who have upheld the covenant. That's what's happening in the book of Hosea right now. God has promised to bring judgment, to bring punishment upon Israel for all of her sins. For all the ways that Israel has turned against God. And He even says... There near the end of chapter 5, he says that he will come like a lion. He will tear and go away. He will carry off and there will be no one to rescue. He will come upon Israel because of the sinfulness of the people as a lion and tear them apart. But then we come into where we began where it says, The Lord says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Here it is, God saying, "I will strike at them. I will fulfill my covenant, for they have been disobedient. For they have rejected me. For they have pursued idol- They have pursued idolatry. They have pursued wickedness. And so I will fulfill my covenant obligations. I will fulfill and and bring judgment against them. But I'm not going to bring final and complete judgment. I will bring judgment in such a way that it will drive their hearts back to me. Is the intention." I will strike them and then withdraw until they turn and acknowledge their guilt. And that's what we hear the people say here in, at the beginning of chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. The Lord brought judgment against the people of Israel in order to bring healing. He desired them to turn from their idolatry, and so he brought condemnation upon them momentarily, so that he could then bring them healing. He struck them down that he could then bind them up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up. The people say. I love that some that so many commentators just points like, you can't get a clearer reference to the resurrection here. On the third day, He will raise us up, capturing the reality that we are caught up in Jesus' resurrection. That, of course, the people didn't understand what they were saying. They didn't recognize what it meant for resurrection to occur. But we know that with Jesus' resurrection, we are caught up in that resurrection. We are partakers of that resurrection. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, so too are we raised on the third day in Christ Himself. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. These are the words that the people are saying. And yet, how does the Lord respond? This is the ideal picture of the people. But how do they actually respond? God tells us here in verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. They're fickle still. They capture glimmers, but they remain fickle. Their hearts have not been wholly given over. They have not wholly received the mercy of God. For in receiving that mercy of God, in receiving His healing and His binding up, They should be driven to recognize what caused the need for healing. What caused the need for being bound up. That it was their sin. And in receiving that mercy of healing, they should turn from that sin. They should turn wholly to the Lord. So because their hearts still remain as the morning clouds that dissipate with the sunrise, He will continue to hewn them by His prophets. He will continue to pour His law upon them. He will continue to send His Word to them to convict them, to drive them to guilt, to bring them down so that they could be lifted up. Because He desires steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And of course, those are the very words that I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice that Jesus is referring to in the Gospels today. In the Gospel, when He tells the Pharisees, think on this, I desire mercy not sacrifice. And we begin to see how important mercy and steadfast love is to God. And we see how Jesus is bringing about that mercy and that steadfast love to the people. Here in the middle of all of this chapter, of chapters 8, 9, and 10, we are hearing about so many healings. Jesus is going around and healing, and here in the middle of all of it, Matthew tells his story. He says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I would take a guess that this is probably not the first time Matthew has seen Jesus. Jesus has been traveling around in Galilee, in Capernaum, in Nazareth, moving around through the cities, preaching and proclaiming the good news. We know when we look at the Gospel of John and the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that, the first, that when He called Peter and John and James and Andrew, that was not the first time they had met Jesus. And so I would guess that this is not the first time Matthew has heard Jesus doing His work, heard Him going around preaching and teaching and healing. And so when Jesus goes by him and says, come and follow Me, He knows it's time. It's time to quit listening and resisting my heart, listening to the sin within, resisting that my heart is being changed by the words of this man, it's time to just simply give up and follow. And of all the people for Jesus to call to Himself, of all the people for Him to demonstrate God's steadfast love to as a tax collector, one of the lowest of the low, I was thinking maybe He might be a DMV worker today. <laughs> it seemed like they always want to take everything slow. They want to make everything as hard as possible. And here in this old day, the tax collectors are the ones that the Jews hated, for they were Jews who worked for the Roman government. They had taken out contracts from Rome to collect taxes from the people, from those travelers coming into city to sell goods. And as they collected the money that they would be giving To Rome, or maybe they had possibly paid in advance what Rome wanted, and now they were collecting to recoup their expenses, they would add on to that in order to earn a living, in order to make money, in order to grow their own wealth. So, tax collectors were a hated people for the Jews. And here is Matthew, a Jewish man, being a tax collector, subcontracting with Rome to collect the people's money, and possibly abusing his position. Taking more than was necessary to himself, but Jesus says, Come and follow me. And Matthew abandons his work as a tax collector. He walks away from it. St. Luke tells us that he gave up everything and followed Jesus. And so later that evening, they're having a party, they're having a dinner. And Jesus sits at the table, he reclines at the table to eat with Matthew and his disciples. And also other tax collectors and other sinners came and they were eating with Jesus and His disciples. Which is scandalous in this time. Again, more tax collectors, not just Matthew were hearing the words of Jesus, but other tax collectors in the area had heard about this man who is proclaiming the steadfast love of God, who is calling people to repentance, who is calling people away from their sinful lives. And then others that are just grouped together as sinners. Here in this day and age, that word sinner is much of a technical term because we're all sinners. And Matthew here is probably using a little bit of the Pharisaical meaning of it. Those people who just didn't live up to the Pharisee standards. Those who maybe even rejected the Pharisee standards and just simply tried to live as simple Jews. The Pharisees considered them sinners, considered them unclean, considered them unworthy of being truly God's people, that they remained in a state of separation from God because they didn't attain to the righteousness that the Pharisees had attained to. And here are these people that the Pharisees consider unclean coming and being with Jesus because Jesus is showing the covenant faithfulness of God. He is showing that steadfast love, that mercy, that kindness, that compassion that we all need. Jesus demonstrates that and it draws people to him as he teaches, as he reveals the will of God. And so the Pharisees are jealous. The Pharisees are thinking, why is he doing this? And so they ask his disciples, why is he eating with these kinds of people? Why are y'all eating with tax collectors and sinners? And here Jesus brings home his point that those who are sick are the ones who need a physician, but those who are well don't need the physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I imagine that maybe Jesus, if He did this back in the day, might have said, the righteous, in air quotes, with quotation marks around it, because there are none who are righteous. There are only those who claim to be righteous, those who think they are righteous, those who think they have earned their way to stand before God on their own two feet by their good deeds. Yes, they may recognize sin and they turn from that sin and they confess that sin, but they then come to think that they are righteous in themselves, that they are building up credit before God. But instead, God, Jesus says, I desire mercy. The Father has said, I desire mercy. And that word mercy there points back to that word steadfast love, that word in Hebrew. That means hesed. That is hesed, a beautiful word that means loyalty, covenant faithfulness, kindness, fidelity, loving kindness, as the King James coined it. It's a beautiful word that reminds us of who God is in and of Himself. But you see, mercy and sacrifice should not be separated from one another. It's not that Jesus is saying, I desire mercy and no sacrifice. It's not that's not what the Father was saying in the Old Testament. But due to the fact of their broken sacrifices, of their broken obedience to the law, of their mere outward participation in things without the change of heart. God would make such a striking statement because the people had separated steadfast love, faithfulness, mercy. They had separated that from their calling toward obedience and sacrifice and giving. They had separated those two things and so God says, I want this other thing more than this right now. But once you have this sacrifice, once you have this mercy, once you have steadfast love in your hearts from Me, then the sacrifice and the obedience will fall into place because they go together. They're not meant to be separated because sacrifice is something that God had given from the very beginning. E.B. Pusey says that God had Himself, after the fall, enjoined sacrifice to pursue and plead to Himself the meritorious sacrifice of Christ. He had not contrasted mercy and sacrifice who enjoined them together. But when they were contrasted, it was through man searing what God had united. Man had ripped apart mercy and sacrifice. It's as if we were to say charity is better than church going, Pusey says. That we would understand it to mean that it is better than that church going that separates itself from charity. That is severed from charity. For if they were united, we would not contrast the two. If charity and church going are perfectly united together, we don't say, well, charity is better than church going. No, we recognize that they go together. But when church going lacks charity, then we say, charity is better. Charity is what you should have, and that would lead and bring about proper church going. They shouldn't be contrasted with one another. And that's what God is saying there in Hosea and what Jesus says here. Mercy and sacrifice shouldn't be contrasted, but because of your brokenness, because of your lack of hesed, they're pushed apart. But God is always perfectly loyal to His covenant. He keeps that steadfast love and that perfect perfection. He keeps all of that together in Himself and He pours it upon us Has said is about absolute loyalty to the promises and commands made in the covenant. And God is perfectly keeping that. He is always covenantly faithful to what He said He would do in His covenant. It could be no other way with God. He would always fulfill what He said He would do according to the covenant. Hence, the covenant had both promises and curses. There were blessings and curses in the covenant. It was full of mercy for those who had received the mercy. For those who would know that they themselves were covenant breakers. There was always mercy for those who recognized we can't fulfill what God demands of us. And so we cry out for His mercy. We do the things that He has called us to do as best we can while saying, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And God would bring mercy upon them but for all of those who refused to see their need for mercy, who had refused to see that they broke the covenant continually, that they were breaking it because of lack of devotion and loyalty and love toward God, curses would come upon them, judgment would come upon them, because they refused to have true chesed toward God. And when they didn't have chesed toward God, they would find out that God's chesed also included judgment that His faithfulness to the covenant included judgment against those who would ultimately reject and resist and throw away His mercies and kindness. And that's what's so strange and unique about mercy, you can say. It's always there. It's always there for the one who recognizes that He needs it. And it will overflow in abundance for that one who says, I need mercy. It comes in wave after wave <coughs> for the one with true knowledge of one's need for it. For the one who doesn't think he needs mercy, there is none to be received because that person's cut himself from it. He has cut himself away from the mercy, but it's still there for that moment of recognition, for that moment of understanding. The mercy remains because God has promised mercy to all of those who recognize their need for it. And so despite how long you might resist the mercy of God, resist seeing yourself as one in need of mercy, the mercy remains ready to be poured out for that moment when that hewing law, when that tearing law finally convicts and causes you to see your guilt and causes you to cry out finally, bring me healing, bring me mercy, bring me faithfulness towards you, O God. That's why Jesus says, the one who is healthy has no need of a physician. Again, The one who is healthy doesn't need it. The one who thinks he's healthy is not seeing the need for the physician. He won't seek out the physician. He won't receive the physician when he comes to the door and enters his house. That one who says, I'm healthy, will just look at that physician and say, I don't need you. Or he might say, how dare you accuse me of not being healthy? Isn't that how we so often react to Jesus? When He points out our need, we say, how dare you accuse me of that? Or likewise, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus comes to the house of one who believes he's righteous, that seemingly righteous one accuses Jesus. He says, how dare you accuse me of not being righteous? You come to me after saying you're seeking sinners? Are you calling me a sinner, Jesus? I don't want your forgiveness. I don't want your mercy because I'm fine the way that I am. I am no sinner, that seemingly righteous one says. I don't need you, Jesus, because you seek after sinners and I'm not a sinner. That's what the seemingly righteous one says. That's what the seemingly healthy one says. I don't need the doctor. I don't need the Savior. But we all know that the seemingly righteous is not really righteous. The seemingly righteous doesn't have that proper chesed, doesn't have that proper covenant faithfulness. Or he would see that he lacks all kinds of righteousness. There's always sin, nonetheless, that has to be dealt with. When that sin is dealt with, other sin will always be revealed. Maybe that's why we're so resistant for dealing with what we consider small sins in our lives. We know that beginning that path of confessing those sins and asking for mercy for those sins will open our eyes to what is really underneath all of that. And so we immediately resist. We prefer to try to quit committing those little sins maybe, but we resist confessing them because if we do, we have to admit what is really deep down underneath those sins. But it's only acting healthy. It's only acting righteous. And if we keep up that act, we will cut ourselves off from the great physician. We'll cut ourselves off from the great healer. We cut ourselves off from the only one who is ever truly righteous. We cut ourselves off from the one who is God's covenant faithfulness embodied. Who is God's chesed in this world. Covenant faithfulness is what Jesus did. And we will always lack that quality in ourselves. We don't have said, We don't have covenant faithfulness. And what's so strange is when we realize I don't have covenant faithfulness, I begin onto the path of covenant faithfulness. When I admit that I am a sinner, I begin on that path of salvation being worked into me. We begin to attain toward faithfulness finally. We enter into covenant faithfulness by admitting that we are not covenantally faithful. And we need one who has actually, truly exercised chesed for us. And that is what God is doing in His covenantal law. He is tearing us, He is making us recognize that we don't have chesed, that we might discover chesed. He is breaking us down with His law, condemning us, convicting us, judging us. And if we insist on remaining on that path of resisting God's law, of resisting His covenant, then we lose. We are cut off from God's mercies. We are cut off from discovering that merciful chesed. And we only receive the condemning chesed. The people seem to respond in Hosea, but they keep cutting themselves off. And so God comes close enough to tear them so that He can bring them healing through his mercies. He pours his law upon them to destroy their self-righteousness. They have all the right outward forms, but they don't have a heart that is faithful. They act like faithfulness is only about the outward things, while refusing to see that God's has said is revealing their lack of it. And in his revealing their lack of it, there is the door of receiving the fullness of it by saying i don't have it myself they would be driven to cry out for the binding up for the healing they would cry out for the righteousness that only comes from god that is based on faith but they shut their ears they shut their eyes to the work to the actions of god they close off their hearts to compassion they refuse to see that the pain they experience was actually because of their lack of faithfulness, because they had cut themselves off from God. They can't see that their lack of faithfulness, of covenantal faithfulness, is what leads to their judgment. It leads to God bearing down upon them with His law. If the people then had but seen that they were resisting, they would find healing. If they would give up resisting, they would find healing. And that is what we are called to today. To see God bring healing out of brokenness by confessing our lack of covenant faithfulness. That is the work of His Spirit in our lives this day is to reveal that lack of covenant faithfulness. To reveal to us our need for God's faithfulness in us. Had last Sunday not been Trinity Sunday, we would have prayed for God to increase His mercy towards us that we would have Him as ruler and guide and so pass through this temporal world without losing the things eternal when you think of that mercy as God's covenant faithfulness as His hesed toward us it's such a beautiful prayer that we are asking for steadfast love and compassion and kindness and faithfulness be poured upon us that we would then receive God as our ruler and as our guide That we would be able to reconnect mercy and sacrifice. Faithfulness and obedience, forgiveness and walking in accordance with the commands that God gives us. That's what we are praying for when we ask for God's mercy for us. That we would bring together what we have broken apart. That we would see that God has united those two things together. And it's the same in today's colic. We ask for God to be active in such a way that His church, us, may joyfully serve Him. And what is that activity that we want? For God to act in accordance with His chesed, with His covenant promises toward all those who trust in Him. And in that, we are changed into the kind of people who joyfully walk in the way of obedience. That obedience that is always confessing our failures and seeking to turn from those failures. The one who receives God's chesed becomes one who has chesed. The one who truly receives God's faithfulness becomes a faithful one. The one who receives God's mercy turns away from that which was the cause of needing God's mercy. And that is found for us in Jesus today. He is the Father's chesed toward us. And Jesus is our chesed toward the Father. He is the one that was perfectly faithful before the Father for us. And because of that, He calls us who are sick to find healing. He calls us who are unrighteous to come to Him to find righteousness. That we come to Him as sinners. And that we discover in Him that that sinfulness is removed. And we are made whole before the Father for eternity. That is God's chesed in Jesus. To make us whole for all of eternity because God is faithful to bring healing and mercy. In the name of the Father and the Son,